Back of the pew in front of you, you could just grab that and turn to page 1013. Also, the children who will be participating in the Easter choir, if you can be dismissed at this time and go back to the fellowship hall, I believe, and you guys will practice, and then those children will come back in shortly. If there's children that are singing in the nursery area, they'll be collected and returned back to the nursery area after they're done practicing as well. But for our time here this morning in uh, this room, uh, we now continue worshiping God by hearing his word. And um, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. This is God's word for us today. And here's what God says. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town um, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say... If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Uh, All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. may be seated. Father, thank you for your word, for we acknowledge that there is really no word like your word. Your word is true. Your word is perfect. Your word is is, living, it's it's active. And our prayer now is that in these moments together, under your word, that you would instruct us and yet not merely give us information, that you would, we pray, Transform us. That by the indwelling spirit in the hearts and lives of your children, we would, we would live out what this passage teaches us so that you are glorified in and through our lives. And we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to look at verses 13 through 17. And 13 through 17, in a sense... Uh, um, come at the end of a, of a long unit in the book of James that began in verse 1 of chapter 3 and, and ran all the way over to uh, chapter 4, verse 12. And, and, and that whole unit was really much about the use of our tongues, uh, how we speak, how we use our words. And, and th- this passage is, is not so much concerned with that per se, and yet and yet I would suggest to you that it does dip back into uh, verses, uh, the preceding verses, uh, in that in the preceding verses, it talked about the role of humility, having humble hearts before God, and the role that that plays in giving rise to our speech and to our words. I think James takes that notion of humility and, and, and reaches back into that segment and works application, a further level of application of humility before God, both in this morning's passage, and I think pretty much the same could be true of 
the passage that we will intend to look at next week as well. And that is, um, uh, when we think about a life of humility, that gives shape to how we think about the future, how we make plans in life, in our lives. Two things I want us to touch on briefly from these verses. Um, first, we want to just consider from this text what it says about planning without thought of God. And then secondly, we want to consider what this passage says about planning with thought of God. Um, Look at verse 13 once again. Come now, you who say, so he's painting this scenario of someone who he's using as a hypothetical example or illustration. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a a town and uh, spend a year there and make a profit. And then he, I'll just touch on the first part of verse 14 as a a response to that mindset. Uh, He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. This guy's planning out the next year, and and yet he's doing so in a way that fails to acknowledge he doesn't even know what is going to happen tomorrow. Now, let me first of all suggest what James is not criticizing or critiquing or condemning in these verses. He's not condemning the mere making of plans. Nor is he condemning the the mere making of plans for the acquisition of money. The problem isn't merely taking a business trip, nor that business trip being a profitable business trip. that's, That's not what's in play here as being critiqued or criticized or condemned. James Uh, all throughout this book has been very uh, much like the book of Proverbs. It has much that it says by way of just practical, applied wisdom and moral skill in living. And the book of Proverbs from the Old Testament, certainly it says much about fearing the Lord as the starting point of wisdom, but in the operation of wisdom, Proverbs says much about planning, And it says much about profits, planning and profits in a way that is in harmony with fearing the Lord, planning and making profits that is in perfect synchronization with the operation of applied wisdom in our lives. Listen to to Proverbs 21, verse 5, that affirms planning and profitability. He says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. He's confirming that as a good thing, to to, to make plans that lead to profitability. Uh, The counterpoint of that in Proverbs 21.5, so the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. 
Or consider the woman in Proverbs 31, the, the noble, the godly woman, the woman of great reputation, good reputation, uh, the wise woman of Proverbs 31. And as you read through the description, the, the cataloging of her qualities and traits, she powerfully displays great skill in planning. She's always thinking ahead and making plans appropriately. She has a forward orientation to her that is affirmed as a good and wonderful thing. But secondly, and relatedly, she has a strong knack for achieving profitability. This is one wise woman. And that wisdom is bore out in her ability to plan and her, her ability to, for her plans to prove profitable. It, is, it, is, it displays great wisdom to have plans and for those plans to achieve profitability. James is not criticizing plans, even plans that lead to profitability. But he is calling out a life that sets out to make plans, that seeks profits without any thought of the Lord. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Completing verse 14, he says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James is not addressing planning and profitability. James is addressing an arrogance. He calls it out as such in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And look at what he says about this boasting. All such boasting is evil. He is not criticizing planning and profitability. He is criticizing ungodly planning and ungodly profitability. In other words, a, a planning that leads to profitability without any consideration of God, without any seeking of God, without putting God at the foundation and the central focus of such plans and profitability. It's just mere um, boasting of one's own abilities. It's Arrogance, and he says it's evil, it's ungodly. And such boasting and such evil is failing to remember, it is forgetting who and what we actually are. We are creatures of dust. Proverbs, I'm sorry, not Proverbs, Psalm, Psalms 103, verses 15 and 16 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it is gone. Did you notice the beautiful spring flowers at the entrance when you came in this morning? If you didn't notice them today, you better after the sermon at least, run back out there and notice them because those spring flowers are not going to last. They are just, they pop up, they're bright and flowery and yellowy and beautiful and there's a purpley out there as well, I think, isn't there? But, um, uh, but, uh, but they are not gonna be around. If you wait till July to notice them, then it's too late. If you wait till even mid-April to notice them, it's too late. The, the psalmist is saying, 
you know what? You and I are a lot like spring flowers. Well, maybe I'm not as beautiful as a spring flower, but, but my time stamp, relatively speaking, is a lot like a spring flower. Psalm 39.5 says, Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Coupled with Psalm 144.4, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Do you hear the hubris of saying... Hey, I'm going to spend the next year uh, in such and such a town, and I'm I'm going to amass great profitability. All of that fails to take into account. You don't know if you're going to be around that long. It's failed to acknowledge that that before God, our lives are like a mere breath. We're like a, a shadow passing. Wind passes over us, and we are gone. James is trying to root us in reality. And part of that entails understanding that you and I, we do not create reality. Coupled with that, not only do we not create reality, you and I, we are not eternal. But God is. God, the scriptures tell us, is from everlasting to everlasting. All that is and all that exists is held together by this everlasting God. We reside in his reality that he has created. He uh, is the one who marks out our lives. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, let alone the next year. But none of that is too difficult for God to grasp. Not only because he knows it, but because he has ordained it. Listen to Psalm 139, verse 16. Uh, The psalmist is Speaking of some of the activities and greatness of God, he says, you saw my unformed substance. In other words, before I, before I ever showed up here on this earth, you saw me and you, you know all there is to know about me. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. I, I, I love the awkwardness of this. This is not good grammar here. Uh, he, he doesn't introduce the subject until he, he pushed puts forth these two phrases. In your book were written every one of them. In your book were written every one of them what? Okay, now he's going to get to the subject. Um, The days that were formed for me. So you formed my days, and they are now written down in your book. Every one of them, every nook and cranny of my life has been uh, decided and set in place by your wise, infinite wisdom and power. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So before you and I ever got started, God already had our plans marked out for us. We don't create the reality of our lives. 
Yes, yes, yes. Make plans. God is forward-looking, and it is wise for you and I to be forward-looking, to not merely dwell in the past, to not merely grab a hold of the moment, but to look forward, to make plans. But know this, this is the point that James is getting at. No plans are to be made without seeking the Lord. Part of that is a mere acknowledgement that my life does not consist merely of what I decide. My life consists of the unveiling of the plans that God has marked out for me. And part of how I recognize that is I seek the Lord in the implementation of my plans. Jeremiah 10, 23, the prophet says, I know, O Lord, that the way of a man is not inside of himself. That, uh, that, that it is not in a man who walks to direct his steps. It's Jeremiah acknowledging that all that is unfolding in his life, all that is progressing in his life ultimately comes from the plans of God. You see, James is critiquing. James is criticizing. James is condemning the foolishness of, of, of plans. Plans even, even leading to profitability without thought of the Lord. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. You say, well, what about Jonah? God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he went to Tarsus, but where did he end up? You and I all day long can fight against the plans of God. But that that does not thwart God's plans. You remember the, the episode that Jesus talked about? I think this illustrates what James is saying about the brevity of our life and the fragility of our life, uh, and, and yet trying to make plans without consulting the Lord. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the story of, uh, uh, for lack of better description, the, the, a, a rich fool um, and uh, he, he, he gives a little description of the guy. The guy has amassed great wealth. He's done quite well for himself, if you would. Uh, but here's his current problem. Uh, he's got so much stuff uh, that uh, he's going to have to build a storage unit. Uh, which, by the way, isn't it amazing that so many storage units pop? That and car washes. But anyway, I digress. But, um, so in verse 17 of Luke chapter 12, the guy asks himself, he's working things out in his own mind. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. There's no, there's no, no consulting the Lord here, which is the problematic issue. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. 
There's nothing in this story that suggested that he's gotten his crops and, and even too much crops by ill-gotten gain. And yet what this story does teach us is that he has set out to make his life what he wants to make out his life without any thought of the Lord. And so while he's making his plans, I mean, he's going to tear down them barns and build bigger barns. I mean, he's going to have enough to eat, drink, and be merry for the rest of his life. The only problem is he doesn't know what the Lord has decreed for him. And so verse 20 says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. He never has the opportunity to see the bigger barns and, the, and, and the, all of the cool stuff that's now in storage in the bigger barns. He, he never has a chance to see that because he doesn't know what God's plans had been for his life. He's never consulted God in his life. And so Jesus calls him a fool. It's foolish. It's not foolish to make plans. It's not even foolish to make plans that result in profitability. But it is foolish to make plans that do result in profitability without an intimate, genuine, earnest seeking of the Lord. And that's the second point we want to touch on briefly. So the first part we've considered the problem here is, is, is planning without thought of God. Well, what's the solution? Planning with thought of God. He says there in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there. If the Lord wills. You see, we plan, but we must plan with thought of God. For only God is the one who is able to bring plans to pass. Listen to this wonderful balance. In fact, you could read all of Proverbs 16. Proverbs all of 16 seems to be oriented around this concern, the tension between planning and yet dependence upon the Lord. It says there in Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Make your plans, but make your plans knowing that your plans are just feeble estimations, they're guesstimates. It is the Lord who will, who will establish our steps. I would suggest to you the implication implication there is so make your plans but make your plans cognizant of the Lord or Proverbs 33 Proverbs 16 33 there's several others in Proverbs 16 but it says the lot is cast into the lap and it says but every that it's every decision is from the Lord Roll that dice, if you would. Now, that's not me commending you going to the boat. Uh, but, but roll that lot. I mean, however we decide this, we do a flip of a coin, or we cast lots, or we roll the dice, or, or we pick a card, or I, I, I don't know, whatever you feel like 
makes life um, uh, unsupervised and random, however you have it. And yet the bottom line is that life is not random and unsupervised. The decision is in the hand of God. See, our God, in all of his power, and yet in all of his wisdom, in all of his goodness, he is controlling all things. If the Lord wills, what if he doesn't will it? Then you won't be going to such and such a town. Just like the guy said, I'm going to build bigger barns and store some more of my stuff. You'll never see those barns built. If the Lord doesn't will it. Do you see how that sets us back and resets our orientation? It's not us thinking future uh, and forwardly, but it's us thinking future and forwardly without any consideration of the Lord. Let me, let me as a kind of a side note here, let me explain something about the, the will of the Lord here for a moment, because he says here, instead say, if the Lord wills. When we think about this notion, the will of the Lord, this might be helpful. I hope it's helpful. The scripture uses that phrase or that notion in a couple of important ways. And um, the first way, which is not the way used here in verse 15, the first way that the scriptures speak of the will of the Lord uh, is, is a sense of the, his will of command. We know God's will uh, when his word explicitly tells us to do this and not do that. We know what his will is in terms of his will of command, the, the moral disclosure from God, what he commands us to do or what he commands us not to do. And so in that sense, how do we know the will of God? Well, um, so like for instance, in the verse that we touched on last week, where it says in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That is the will of God. That is his will of command. He's, he's told us, I don't want you to slander somebody else. Uh, and and when, if we move through life and we slander people, we are operating outside of the will of God in that sense, his will of command. If we move through life and we try to be sensitive and, and, and keep a watch over our, our hearts and our, our mouths and we do not slander people, then we are in compliance with the, the will of God, meaning his will of command, that which he commands us to do, tells us to do. But how... The will of the Lord is used here in these verses, particularly in verse 15 where it says, if the Lord wills, we will live in such and such a city or and do this or that. Um, that is what maybe for lack of better description, I would label the, the will of decree, the sovereign determination of God. Uh, what he has determined, he will bring to pass. And sometimes that's quite mysterious and secret to us. It's not spelled out for us, whereas he says, do not slander your neighbor. That's, that's his will for us, meaning his moral will, his will of what he commands us, explicitly discloses to us as to what we're be to, to be concerned with. But these other things, it's like uh, these things are, are somewhat um, uh, hidden to us. What has God marked out for me? 
what, what, what will I be like in 20 years? <laughs> Isn't that presumptuous? Will I make it through lunch today? I, I, don't, I don't know what God's will is in that regard. I'm hoping I make it through lunch today. It's a good lunch. I hope you're, hope you're planning to stay. hope it's God's will for you to stay. And, 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 and yet, do you see how we use the will of God in, in different nuances there? James is talking about the will of God, not which he commands us to do, but that which God has ordered. Isaiah 46.10, the Lord says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Why did God bring you into this world? Do you realize that he has a purpose for you coming into this world? He has a purpose for me coming into this world. He doesn't say, how did Joe get here? I, I didn't see that one coming. I, I, I don't, what am I going to do with Joe? I mean, some of you are wondering that, but God's never wondered that. Now, the great humble reality is, well, if God's not accidentally brought me into this world, but he's purposely brought me into this world, and he has a purpose for my life, then, then in a sense, a, a really important facet of my life is, Lord, what is your will for me? What, do you, what, do you, what have you put me here on this earth to do? What is my life to consist of? What is it to be about? Uh, and, so, and so as I consider traveling to this town, how will that honor and glorify you? Uh, is, that, is that what you want for me? As I, as I plan this business arrangement and accomplish this, this notion of profitability, Lord, what do you want for me out of this? May I honor you in my plans and in my quest for profitability, but, but may I, certainly may I not get that by ill-gotten gain, and may, not, may, may, may once I have that, if that is your will, may I then use it for your glory and not just for myself, which, again, is probably a major faux pas of the guy back in Luke. He had so much stuff that couldn't be stored in his current barns and it never thought maybe I should share it with somebody. Again, he has, he has no thought of God in, in his, his life. It's all about himself and about what he wants. And yet we are brought to this humble, crashing reality that our life is not as independent and autonomous, that I am not quite the guy who, who has it um, all marked out in my own wisdom and own ingenuity, but I am in God's good hands. Daniel 4 says his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the, uh, of, of, of the earth are accounted as nothing. He and he does according to his will uh, among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Who can stay his hand? This is the God with whom we have to do. He is a God who has a plan. He is a God who is bringing his plan to completion. I was talking to Samuel a while ago before we baptized him, and uh, he's, um, he just finished reading through the book of Revelation. So, he's, so I, I told him to ask some of you guys to explain it to him. So, um, but uh, anyway, but, but more than anything, I just rejoice and say, isn't it good to know that God has the future marked out for us, that, that he's not fretting, that he's not worried, 
but, but he knows where he's going. He has a plan. He's going to take it there. Well, Daniel is conferring with that. He is, he is saying that no one can stay God's hand. When God gets it in his heart and mind to do something, guess what? And then, so then your life and my life, our lives are dependent upon his plans and are to be, our plans are to be made open-handedly, holding it up to God's plans. And so he says, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, that is us acknowledging not only the will of God, meaning the will that he commands for us, but the will of God, meaning the will that he has decreed for all people, all places, all times. But think about verse 15 when he says, instead you might say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Do, do we need, need to literally preface every one of our stated purposes with the phrase, if the Lord wills? Let me consider that just for a moment. And the, first of all, I would just remind us of what ought to seem really obvious uh, is, well, you shouldn't say, I'm going to go do this if the Lord wills. And you first haven't given thought of the Lord in your plans. If you first haven't sought the Lord with your plans. In other words, it, we, we, we wouldn't want to be guilty of, of, of being um, hypocritical on this, that we, that we would just use this as a magical religious sounding phrase when we have not earnestly sought the Lord. Psalm 119 verse 33 uh, this beautiful word of, worded prayer, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. What a, what a wonderfully stated orientation that acknowledges that, God, you have plans set and, and I'm, setting, I'm seeking to make plans, but may my plans be uh, in submission to, in acknowledgement of your plans. I am in need of you. And, and as we seek the Lord in prayer on that, we certainly say, and Lord, show me from your word any, any moral boundaries that might be guiding your will in the implementation of your plans. Show me from your word what I don't know and what I need to know. But it's also just an acknowledgement as Psalm 33:15 states, that is, my times are in your hands. Our lives are in the hands of God. And if we don't earnestly feel that, and if we don't practically acknowledge that by seeking the Lord, then it's not helpful at all of injecting a little religious cliche in there, if the Lord wills, when we have given no thought of it. The Apostle Paul, I think he reflects the, the consistent pattern of this in his plans. He, he was very eager to accomplish things. And in fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 10, he's very eager to come to Rome in person. And so before he gets there, he wants to write them a letter, but he's wanting to get there in person. He says that you are always in my prayers. I'm asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I want to come see you guys. 
if the Lord wills it. So first of all, should we use the phrase, if the Lord wills? Yes, but first, have we actually sought the Lord? Are we actually acknowledging the Lord? Have we been earnest and genuine and sincere in bringing the Lord in uh, in terms of how we decipher our plans? Secondly, uh, should I use the phrase, if the Lord wills, um, every, for every one of my verbalized stated plans and purposes? Well, it's not my place to create a new law. But it seems that as, as it's prudent to do so, we should adopt a habit of including something like this acknowledgement in our verbalization. Because I think it will do two things. When we create a pattern, a genuine pattern, not just a superficial pattern, but when we create a, general, a genuine pattern of saying things like, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that, it's a good reminder to our own hearts that we're not the boss of me, that, that our lives are in God's hands. God is bringing to pass whatsoever he will in our lives. But I think it can also be a good witness and encouragement to others. A, a, a way to point people to the Lord and away from ourselves. A, a way to promote what we understand, and that is our lives are in God's hands. How do we help others to acknowledge the trueness and the universality of that reality? And, and part of which is we can bore that, bear that out in the testimony of our own words and our own uh, verbal acknowledgments. And then verse 17 he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, I suppose it's not incorrect to take verse 17 and to apply that in a really broad way. In other words, anything that you know to be true that you, to, that you are to do, that the scriptures tell you to do, when you and I fail to do it, then that's sin. But I would remind us of the immediate context here of verse 17. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so what is the, what is the right thing that you now know to do? And if you fail to do it, it is sin. Well, it goes back to a failure to acknowledge the uncertainty of life and our utter dependence upon the Lord concerning our plans. When you and I, now that we know that our lives do not consist merely in our plans, but our lives are to be submitted to God uh, for the acknowledgement of his power and his plans in our lives, failing to do that in our lives is sin. You see, even for those of us who trust the Lord Jesus Christ, there's still this sneaky little lingering vestiges of the flesh inside of us that, that wants to whisper in our ear and suggest, you know, there's nothing like doing what God wants you to do that will ruin your life. 
I mean, be a man and be your own man and set your own path and make your own decisions, but don't get drugged down into God's thing. That's, that's the devil talking. That's the flesh talking. That's the world talking. For there is nothing sweeter. There is nothing more haplifying. There is nothing more joy producing. There is nothing more settling than, than knowing the, the outworking of our lives is the outworking of of God's plans in our lives. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Are not two sparrows worth a penny or sold for a penny? In other words, you put two sparrows together and uh, you only got a penny's worth of stuff. Are not... And, 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 and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. So if, 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 if a worthless sparrow, half a cent kind of thing, uh, uh, falls to the ground and dies, that does not happen apart from the will of your father. And then he throws this in surprising wrench. It's not a surprising wrench, but he says, and are you not worth more than a sparrow? I mean, I'm probably worth two cents, not a half a cent. So, but, but that's, 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 a, that's pretty good uh, proportion there. And so, so says, do not fear. Do not fear. For you, we are worth more. In other words, it is a good thing to know that God has marked out our plans in our lives. It is a good thing to know that he is orchestrating the events and the affairs of our lives. And so it is a good thing that when we do set to make our plans, we do so wanting to do God's plan. For it is always a good and a wise plan. And for those who know Jesus, it is us who have a father in heaven who has good plans for us. If you don't know Jesus, honestly, the plans are not good. But here's an opportunity even this morning for you to turn from yourself and to turn to Jesus, to trust in the perfect life that he has lived, to trust in the perfect sacrifice he offered up at the cross for us, whom God raised from the dead and declared him to be Lord, who whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Turn to the Lord, and guess what else you get? You get the Lord's Father who is in heaven, who has great plans for his children. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that your word says to us and teaches us. Thank you for the wisdom that it imparts to us. And oh, Father, I pray that we would find it a great joy and delight that you have a will for our lives. Not only the will that you've spelled out for us in your commands, but the will that you have decreed over our lives that you've marked out before we ever got here. Oh, Father, may we acknowledge that and may we seek you in the unfolding of that. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.